uh, over the years as a pastor, um, I have uh, had a number of conversations uh, with folks uh, who have um, wanted a little bit of religion in their lives. Uh, they, they believe in Jesus in, in the sense that they believe George Washington existed or uh, somebody else from the 15th or 16th century that they've read about in, the, in their history books, but they were unwilling to follow Christ uh, as an obedient disciple. And in fact, a, a number of people have said to me, you know, I, I believe in Jesus. Uh, I, I want him to be in my life, but I'm not quite ready. Right, not right now. Uh, I, I'm thinking a little bit later on in my life, um, I'll, I'll come around and I will ask Jesus to come into my life and, and provide leadership and guidance in, in my life. And what has ended up happening a lot in, in people's lives like that is that the, the years go by, the decades go by, and all of a sudden life comes to an end and they haven't done due, due diligence with, with Jesus and his claims. We often refer to these that go to the very end um, as, the, as a deathbed conversion. Uh, those who have put it off and put it off and put it off. And now they quite literally are in a hospital bed or they're in a bed at home and they know that their, that their end day is approaching nigh and, and they panic and they want to know more uh, about how it is that they can be rescued from the destination that is held out to them who have rejected Christ. I, I, I open with this because we're gonna to talk tonight about Jesus and his place between the two thieves on the cross. Uh, one of them, for all intents and purposes, has a deathbed conversion. I believe in them. I don't recommend them. And so the, the message that I want to bring to you this evening out of the gospel according to Luke is that the time of salvation is now. And Christ um, has made that way possible for us. And, and Luke records in a very concise way, one little paragraph actually, in a concise way, uh, the cross truths that we need to uh, obey and follow. And so I hope to give you four words tonight uh, that, that string together and show us the way unto salvation, according to the good news of, of Jesus Christ. Last Sunday, we learned uh, that the good doctor, Luke, uh, is also an historian, and he has a story to tell, and, and the story has a goal. It's to assure his readers that we can know the truth about Jesus and that we can know it with certainty. You recall, if you were with us on Sunday, that there are some things we can know with certainty. And to this end, Luke recorded the following words of Jesus, which we looked at last week in chapter 18, that everything that is written about the Son of God by the prophets will be accomplished. I've been feasting on that, uh, feasting on that and finding a great deal of assurance to know that I can know with certainty, I can trust this word, it comes out of the mouth of Jesus himself, and he has put these people around him to record these stories so that you and I can know what the truth is. So tonight in Luke 23, the good doctor will continue his telling of the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And as I've mentioned to you, we'll, we'll focus on, on the short but deep interaction between Jesus and the two thieves, uh, between whom he was crucified. It's an interaction that teaches us the way of salvation. Here are the four words, the four cross truths, and I'll show you very simply how we'll walk through them and tie them all together in just the brief time we have tonight. The first word that I want you to hear is admit. 
The first, the first cross truth is admit. The second cross truth is recognize. And third will be turn. And fourth will be receive. You can see the pattern already. This is the way unto salvation. Admit, recognize, turn, and receive. Truths from the cross of Jesus Christ. Let's look at the first one, shall we? The first cross truth is we must admit our guilt. Verse 39 and 40 of Luke chapter 3 reads like this. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. And then verse 40, but the other rebuked him. Try to imagine this dynamic now. The other rebuked the other thief and he said to them, do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? Here's two sentences in, in two short sentences, we have what I'm calling here a representation of the two types of people that are in the world. There are those with no fear of God, and then there are those who, in fact, fear God. Though, though cynical, interestingly enough, this first thief that has spoken, cynical, sarcastic, but notice that he recognizes the Christ. Yes, he says if, but he had to have been around Jesus. He had to have heard something somewhere, either from Jesus directly or from some of his followers. If you are the Christ, the chosen one, the Messiah. And he's aware of that the Christ has the ability to save. If you are the Christ, save us. It's perfectly logical and clearly understood by this first century condemned thief. If you are the Christ, then the Christ saves. If you are the Christ, prove it. Save yourself. Save us. See, what he didn't know was what the mysterious plan of God was really all about. That plan we read about in Isaiah 52 and 53. But he fails to recognize his need for salvation. He can be so close. And it's true of so many people, isn't it? We can know things about Jesus. We can even call him the Christ and ask him to save. But if we're unwilling to yield to him, then what good does it really do? The other thief, on the other hand, is humbled. He's drawn to an awareness of his state. He is a condemned man. He's aware of God's justice, and therefore he is in need of salvation. Do you not fear God? We are justly condemned. We're going to see this in just a second here in verse 41. First, we must admit our guilt. Here's the second step. Verse 41, the second cross truth this evening is that we must recognize Jesus's righteous innocence. Luke seems to go out of his way here a little bit. In verse 41, we indeed justly, says the second thief, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. See, so he, he's, he's aware that he has to admit his guilt. He also is aware that he has to admit the, the, the righteous, the justice of God that God is right in condemning him a sinner, a thief, unrepentant. He's humbling himself and coming to the Lord in proper fear. But notice what he says there in the second half of verse 41. The thief continues and says, but this man, Jesus Christ, the man hanging in the middle of these two thieves, has done nothing wrong. So he draws, the thief does, draws this comparison. I'm justly condemned by God. This one is innocent. He has done no wrong. Why is it that he is suffering like you and me, says the thief to the other. 
And as I've just mentioned, Luke seems to go out of his way to display with certainty Jesus' innocence. Notice in chapter 23 and verses 14 and 22, Pilate twice declares he can't find anything on Jesus. In Luke 23, 15, Herod, Herod himself says, I agree with Pilate. One of, the, one of the rare times they would have agreed on something. Herod said, I agree too. Pilate sent him to me. I've examined him. I find no fault in him. Third is the thief on the cross himself in verse 41. He says, this man is innocent. And the fourth time in verse 47, after Jesus has given up his spirit, the centurion, who certainly would have known guilt and suffering, says, that this man certainly, certainly was innocent. Four times, Luke puts words in the mouths of the characters around the cross of Christ that Jesus was the innocent one. This, if you've been a Christian for any amount of time, know that this is the centrality of the gospel message, the innocent dying in the place of the guilty. Paul says in one of the most famous verses in the, in the New Testament, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21, he said that God made him who knew no sin, Jesus, to become sin, so that we, unrighteous, would know and, and have the righteousness of God credited to our account. 2 Corinthians 5, 21, the innocent dying in the place of the guilty, so that the guilty can then take on the righteousness of Jesus Christ himself. This is our second cross truth. Not only must we admit our guilt, we also must recognize, we must recognize Jesus' righteous innocence, the innocent dying for the guilty. Third, the third cross truth that follows from this little paragraph tonight is that we must turn to Jesus the King. It's one thing to admit it's another thing even to recognize. It's a third and very important thing to turn to Jesus. It's the essence of repentance. It, repentance is not just confession, but it's turning 180 degrees away from our old life and taking steps forward to walk with Jesus into a new life. Uh, the essence of repentance is the changing of one's mind and following a new course. So third, we must turn to Jesus the King. This is found in verse 42, is it not? And he said, the second thief to Jesus, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. It's an expression of faith here on the part of the thief where he says to Christ, I'm humbling myself. Remember me, Lord, when you enter into your kingdom. The thief, the second thief, like the first one, also knew his theology. Uh, we don't know his crime exactly, what it was that he stole, whether it was his first time or his 21st time, we, we don't know. We don't know his crime, but it seems that he had been around Jesus and he had heard, heard, he had heard his message. Maybe he, was, maybe he was there the day when, in the synagogue, where Jesus uh, took the scroll of Luke, and uh, a scroll of Isaiah, and found the place that he wanted to find, and then said these words recorded for us in Luke. Chapter 4, um, in verses 18 and 19. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty 
those that are oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Notice what the thief has done. He's admitted his guilt. He has recognized Jesus's innocence. And now he turns to the one with kingly authority. Kingly authority to do what? To set at liberty those who are oppressed. Like the thief who came to recognize his condemned state, his oppressed state, he turned to Jesus and asked Christ to be with him in glory. Perhaps someone's out there tonight feeling oppressed, thinking that you've, well, you've admitted your guilt. Yeah, I feel bad. I, I don't like what I do. My conscience is bothering me. You've even recognized the fact that Jesus perhaps is a great moral teacher or may have been able to go so far as to say that he was an innocent man. But is that where you're stopping? You need to continue along the path with Christ and the way that Luke has shown us tonight that we might have certainty about that which we believe. Will you tonight admit your guilt? Will you recognize the innocent of Jesus? And will you turn to the one with the kingly authority, the authority to forgive sins and to, to set at liberty those who are oppressed? I said there were four words tonight, and this is the fourth cross truth that I uh, bring to you this evening. We must admit our guilt we must recognize Jesus' innocence. We must turn to the one with kingly authority to forgive us. And fourth and finally, we must receive. We must receive the king's gift of restored fellowship with the Father. That's a, that's a mouthful. That's a lot. Let me explain to you where, where I get that. It's in verse 43. The text reads, And he, that is Jesus, said to this thief, to give him great confidence and great assurance. He said to him, Truly I say to you today, Today, Jesus is well aware of what he's doing. Today, you will be with me in paradise. There have not been more beautiful words spoken to another human being than these words from our Savior hanging at, on the cross at the place called the skull. Today, I truly, I say to you, you will be with me in paradise. But let me make something clear to, hear, to you as we wind down our time together. In, a, in the teaching, uh, there's, this is much more than a one-way ticket to heaven. For a lot of people, it's praying a prayer. We, we call it sometimes fire insurance. We, we, we don't so much want to be with God or, or, or be with Jesus, but we don't want to go to hell. We don't want to have to suffer the condemnation that we know intuitively within our own being that we're guilty and that we're deserving of God's just punishment. Now, this is much more than a one-way ticket to heaven, if you please. Let me tell you why. Uh, in the early translation of the Old Testament, which was written in Hebrew, it was later translated into Greek so that those who spoke Greek would be able to understand the Bible of the early church, which was the Old Testament. It was Jesus's Bible. And so in that translation, the Old Testament translation of the Greek, the word paradise is used to translate the word garden more often than not in Genesis uh, 1 and 2, particularly in Genesis 2, 8, and 9. Where the word garden appears, this Greek translation that would have been the Bible of the first century church translated as paradise. 
So what does that mean? Well, it means, it seems to me, that Jesus is talking more about how to get saved and go to heaven, as much in referring to paradise as he's speaking of the Father's goal to restore all of creation, to literally bring us back into the garden, to introduce the, the, the new creation that we see in Revelation 21 and 22, suggesting that Jesus had in mind the restoration of all things, which, which breathtakingly includes your salvation. You see, salvation is a strong and central theme in all of Scripture, but it's part of a much wider definition of salvation, because here, as Paul says it, let me, let me let Paul tell you how this works out. In Colossians 1, 19, how Paul says it. Listen to me carefully. For in him, Jesus, all the fullness of God dwells. And through him to reconcile, see, there's the, res the restoration language, and through Jesus to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So in that one little word, that paradise, Jesus didn't say, today you'll be with me in heaven, or today you'll be with me in some other place. He says, today you'll be with me in paradise. My father, said Jesus in so many words, is about the, the, the business of restoration, of reconciling all things. And we see the effects of sin in our world today. We're, we're still in the midst of a rampant pandemic. And that when you drill down in its final effect is due to the fallenness of the world. One day, praise be to God, one day there'll be no more pandemic. There'll be no more cancer. There'll be no more death or dying. There'll be full restoration. And how will it be accomplished? Well, Paul tells us he will do that through himself, whether on earth or, or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. It's, it's one of the great paradoxes of the Christian faith, that peace would come about, reconciliation would come about, restoration would come about by the most violent act the first century world knew namely crucifixion on a cruel, cruel cross. It is by the blood of Jesus Christ that any of this is accomplished. I said there were four words, and I showed you in the text, a very short paragraph, how it came up. We must admit our guilt. We must recognize the innocence of Jesus Christ. We must turn to Jesus the King. And in turning to Jesus, Jesus the King, we must receive that which he has for us. Friends, let, let me ask you a question on this Good Friday Eve as the sun is now setting here. Do you have certainty, certainty about your eternal destiny? Luke tells us that we can have certainty. And this is one more place where he has laid it out ever so carefully for us with these pregnant words in this very poignant scene with Christ in the middle of it all, which is where he is and needs to be. When you appear before Jesus, and we all will, the Bible tells us, when you appear before Jesus on that last day, and don't wait for a deathbed experience because you don't know when your deathbed will come rolling in for you. When you appear before Jesus, will he say to you, today you will be with me in paradise? Let me ask you, what path are you on? Are you the one 
the first, like the first thief that tells Jesus who he must be and what and when he must do it? Is that the path that you're presently on? I pray that it is not. Or is, it, is the path that you're on similar to the one of the second thief? Remember at the beginning of our teaching time, I said, these two men represent two paths of life. One filled with cynicism and sarcasm, dictating to Jesus how he is to run his world. And the other, humbled, fearing, worshiping God. Are you the one that is admitting? Are you the one that is recognizing? Are you the one that is turning? Are you the one that perhaps even tonight is receiving what it is that this one who hung on Calvary's cross has for you? Yes, there are such things, I believe, as deathbed conversions. But you must not wait, friends. You cannot say, tomorrow I will do this. Because Jesus' half-brother James would, would, would write very shortly after this, you do not know whether you will have tomorrow. Our life is but a vapor. Here today, gone tomorrow, fleeting and passing away, unlike the word of God, which, which does not pass away and will go on with us into eternity. There are such things as deathbed conversions, but you and I do not have the authority to determine when our time will come. The Bible tells us that Jesus is the one who has determined the length of our days. You must not wait tonight. Good Friday evening, if you please, is the night of your salvation. The cross of Jesus Christ is the only certainty to salvation, to paradise. To God. At the end of the day, at the end of the day, the point of our salvation is to bring us to God. It's not merely to adopt us. It's not merely to justify us. It's not even merely to save us. Because I would certainly hope that you would want more than merely to be saved from something. No, dear friends, we are not only saved from something, but we are saved to something. And my closing prayer for you and for me and for any of you who are watching and listening tonight is that you desire not only to be saved from your sin, from hell, from sin and death, but that you desire to be saved to God. I leave you with the words of the great apostle Peter, because in one verse, he summed it up for us. And this is where I leave it. This is first Peter chapter three and verse 18. Christ has suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, just like Paul said, to what end? And Peter says this, that he might bring us to God. That's the message of salvation. That's the message of the cross of Jesus Christ. The end goal to this grand narrative is to bring you to God. I ask you tonight, friend, do you not want to come to God? And look forward to the day when you will see him face to face. And he says, welcome, enter into my presence. Tonight is the night of your salvation. Would you admit that you're guilty? Would you recognize the innocence of Jesus Christ? Would you turn to him in his kingly authority? And would you receive the great gift, the paradise that he has for you as he seeks to restore all things? Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. 
may tonight your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Oh, Father, for those who are lost and wandering and tuning in this evening, I pray that you bring them home tonight, that they're running, that they're dodging, that they're hiding, that their shame is all put behind them this evening, Father, and that they come to you admitting their guilt and recognizing the authority to forgive sins that King Jesus has. And would they receive his great invitation to enter into full restoration with you, God, our Father, who is in heaven. You are reconciling men to yourself in the person of Jesus Christ. And we humble ourselves tonight, Father, not dictating to you how you should run your world, but with holy and humbling fear, come into your presence and ask for your good and pleasing and perfect will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we ask it as the book of Acts tells us, in the only name under heaven given upon earth by which we might be saved, the glorious name of Jesus Christ, whom we celebrate this evening on this Good Friday, both now and forevermore. Amen and amen.